we going to get this thing started? Are we going to do this? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to do it. You know why we're going to do it? Because this, 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 this won't hurt a bit. Hey, Mel, how many times do people ask you about scenes in movies and whether or not that's realistic? All the time. Generally, during the movie, while I'm telling them to shut up, I'm trying to get lost <laughs> in the moment. But yes, all the time before and after people ask you, could that really happen? Uh, does that really happen? Uh, is that what it looks like? Is that what it smells like? That's really gross. So yeah, people love the movies and they love the medicine in movies, but they always want to know, is that true? Could that happen? Mel, is that before or after they show you their weird mole? Uh, often during. Hey, uh, Doc, I got this thing on my buttocks and, hey, did you see the Revenant, the person? Like, come on, really? My name's Professor Mel Herbert, with the emphasis on the Mel. I like Dr. Professor Mel Herbert, personally. Thank you. I'm, I'm Dr. Jess Mason, just doctor. And I'm Dave Mason, with the emphasis on the... On this episode of This One in a Bit, we're going to be talking about movie medicine. Who doesn't like a good movie, right? Oh, I love I love bad movies. I'll sit through any movie. I love them. He will sit through any movie. I will. <laughs> what movies are we talking about? We're going to do Pulp Fiction. Oh, classic. classic. Absolute classic. Mad classic. Max Fury Road. So good. Instant classic from my people. <laughs> and The Revenant. Just oh, saw it. the bear yeah. scene. Leo is taking that award home. I'm calling it. Well, actually, this you show comes call out because it comes out after <laughs> the Academy Awards. So I'm calling it anyways. No, just say it. Let's see how confident you are right now. I'm, t- and I'm calling Leo it. Won it. I am calling the shot. <laughs> All right, let's do this. Pulp Fiction. Of course, I remember the heroin overdose scene. Come on. There are few more iconic scenes in modern cinema than the arrest scene in Pulp Fiction. I remember going to see it at the movies like it was just yesterday. I was finishing my emergency medicine residency at UCLA and I had hair. It wasn't yesterday, it was 21 years ago. But they were good times. So let's do a little setup and explanation and look at some of the more interesting aspects of this famous overdose near-death experience. John Travolta's character, Vincent Vega, and Uma Thurman's character, Mia Wallace, are going out on the town. He was actually asked to take her out and show her a good time by his boss, Marcellus Wallace, the big gangster. The kind of guy you don't want to mess with. So he takes her out, and they're having a good old time. They go to eat, they have a little dance. So it turns out both Uma and John like themselves some drugs. Uma, in particular, likes cocaine. And at the beginning of the setup to the scene, is doing quite a lot of it. Later, as John goes off to the bathroom, she finds a baggie in his pocket. She thinks it's cocaine, right? And snorts a truly giant line. Snorts it. Not of cocaine, but of heroin. It goes into some kind of uh, shock, coma situation. <laughs> she immediately goes into a peri-arrest state with lots of epistaxis. Bleeding from the nose. And I presume heroin-induced Foaming at the mouth. So John Travolta comes into the room and he finds Uma Thurman's character face down on a glass table, completely unresponsive. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, f me. F me. Oh. She doesn't look so good. Let's start with a chat about heroin. Remember, heroin's not an upper, it comes from opium, so it's a downer. 
It slows down your breathing and can make it stop. And if your breathing stops, your oxygen starts to drop, which we call hypoxia. And this can make your heart slow down. It can even make your heart stop. Of course, when John finds her, he immediately calls 911 to get help. No, no, of course he doesn't. So he picks her up, Come on, girl. throws her in the car, and he starts driving over to the drug dealer's house. Don't f***ing die on me, Mia! Now, the response in the 1990s might have been a little bit different, but if you're not up to speed on the latest American Heart Association guidelines, and I know it's not the best bathroom read, actually what we recommend now for the non-medically trained, if you find someone unresponsive, is to just start compressions. And at that point, one of two things will happen. Either they're gonna wake up and say, ouch, that hurts, get off me, or they actually need the chest compressions to keep them alive. But this is the 1990s, and John Travolta probably doesn't read the AHA guidelines, so he throws her in the car and he drives her where? To the drug dealer's house. Because if anyone knows a lot about drugs and overdose, it's the dealer. Played by the magnificent Eric Stoltz. Out of my way. Take her into the house. Pig. Immediately they they know what they must do. And he draws up what looks to me like a milligram of epinephrine in a large syringe with a large needle. Okay, so a milligram. Good job. That's the right dose that we use in cardiopulmonary arrest. They have to get directly into the heart of Uma Thurman's character. The needle's really long. You're giving her an injection of adrenaline straight to her heart, but she's got a breastplate. So you gotta pierce through that. So what you gotta do is you gotta bring the needle down in a stabbing motion. I gotta... As they're about to do it, one, two, three. All right, count to three. All right, ready? One. There's a close-up shot of, you know, her, her face. She's kind of drooling at the mouth, unresponsive. Two. And there's a nice close-up shot of the uh, syringe with even a tiny little bit of uh, adrenaline dripping out of it. And then he just, boom, slams that shit down into her chest. Through her breastplate, supposedly going into her heart. And she, uh, obviously, wakes up. She wakes up immediately. She wakes up immediately. Immediately, immediately. Like magic brings her back to life instantly. Three! <laughs> only problem is that epinephrine is not the antidote for heroin overdose. The antidote for heroin, of course, is naloxone. Also called Narcan. And that temporarily reverses the effects of heroin. So when we give that in the ER, the person starts breathing, wakes up, and usually yells some profanity at us. It is true that in the dim dark ages of the 1960s, some experts, based on dog studies, were advocating the use of epinephrine inserted through the chest wall between the fourth intercostal space, gently into the left ventricle, followed by CPR to circulate it around. The problem with a long needle going right into the chest is that it can cause a lot of injuries, like a laceration of your coronary artery or an abnormal heart rhythm. You can get a collapsed lung or damage a large vessel like the aorta. So it's pretty dangerous. With the epinephrine presumably injected somewhere into the region of the heart, for this heroin overdose, not much is going to occur, except maybe a little ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation because she's already hypoxic and now you're giving her a giant catechol surge directly to the heart. Well, think Screenplay Academy Award here. That's right. Instead, she immediately wakes up. But she wakes up really fast before there's any chance to circulate that medicine from her heart into her bloodstream. So, great scene, great movie save, but please, if this happens in real life, please call 911. And if you're worried about the law, well, we're doctors. We're not law enforcement. Overall, I give this scene a C plus. 
no CPR, a long downtime, the wrong medication, dangerous delivery, and no time for it to take effect. But it's a classic scene, so it still gets a passing grade. Ladies and gentlemen, the envelope, please, that was outstanding. But in almost every aspect, had nothing to do with reality. <laughs> that was f***ing trippy. <laughs> Dave, what'd you think about what we had to say about Pulp Fiction? Did we answer your questions? Yes, I think you answered most of them. Um, I have a lot of other questions, I think. Oh, great. We'll just Here kinda, we go. I'll just kind of spitball them to you and yep. see if you can uh, answer spit them for ball me. Em. Spit away, Dave. <laughs> spit away. So the movie sort of infers that snorting heroin is the worst way to ingest it. That's that's sort of what I got from it. Um, is that true? Well, there's no good way to use heroin. I'd say they're all not recommended, but they each have different things about them that make them particularly bad. And I don't think snorting heroin is worse than shooting heroin in your vein. Actually, IV heroin use has a higher rate of overdose and death related to overdose than oh, really? snorting heroin. But they, they you can obviously overdose from either way. Probably shooting IV heroin is the worst because then you're also making yourself susceptible to all the diseases from shared needles and bacterial infections and soft tissue infections. Heroin is just one of those drugs that you don't want to screw around with, even though there is a giant epidemic in the US right now and people are dying at a huge rate, I guess because it's really cheap and the market has been flooded. Um, don't snort it, don't shoot it, and smoke it, don't eat it, don't lick it, walk away. It's bad stuff. Well, I guess I didn't mean the worst way, but more the most potent way. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as she ingests it, she's like instantly overdosed right on the verge of death. I think the reason why she had this overdose is she was heroin naive. She's obviously a cocaine user and she just did a big line of heroin. Um, it's not like she's built up some sort of tolerance. She did this big line of heroin, not being a heroin user, and that's going to make anyone overdose. Yeah, we talked about that in a prior episode about how when you do heroin the first time and you get all this dopamine, you're like, ah, oh, it's fantastic. But to get that same level of high, you have to do a little bit more the next time. Mm. And then you have to be, do a bit more. And you said it was called chasing the dragon because you're some kind of a drug guru. And uh, <laughs> so she took the dose that somebody who maybe has been using heroin for two years is really tolerant. And that's certainly true. If you overdose with a huge amount, the effect can be faster onset than if you overdose in a smaller amount. Actually, the time when a person is at the highest risk for an overdose, if they're a heroin user, is if they've actually tried to get sober and then they go back and use again because they've lost their tolerance. Yeah, because you used to use like a couple of spoonfuls to get your high and then you don't use for six months. And now you go, oh, I used to use two spoons of heroin and then you die. So um, in the scene when Mia Wallace... Uh falls flat on a uh, glass table and she's got the blood coming from her nose what what is the white stuff coming from her mouth well i'm gonna say that that white stuff is a thing called uh heroin induced pulmonary edema so it's uh, when you overdose on heroin or you've got sometimes when it's heroin that's mixed with bad stuff your lungs can get really leaky so all the fluid from your blood starts to leak into your lungs and then you start to cough up that fluid and that can be pretty bad because you can die basically of drowning in your own spit. And that's kind of what she looks like she has. So if I find someone unresponsive, I should just start CPR. <laughs> I don't have to check for a pulse or if they're like a little mirror under their nose to see if they're breathing. I just start CPR. I just jump on top of them and just go. Well, 
Essentially, yes. But your first approach could be walking up to this person who's laying down unresponsive, unconscious, and just sort of, you know, saying, hello, can wake up. What's your name? Seeing if they'll respond to you. Right. Uh, maybe give them a little nudge and see if they'll wake up and, and talk to you. Maybe they're just sleeping or maybe they're uh, passed out, but not in a in a coma state. That's true. Um, that could be awkward. That could be awkward. On top I've done yeah. that. <laughs> I've done that too. The uh, hospital at... Uh, I used to work at that remained unnamed, had an enormous amount of homeless population around it. And so as the ER doc, you're going to work and you see this person lying in the street and you're like, oh my God, and you pull the car over and uh, I go and grab this guy. And this t- I did this like three times. I'm like, um, I'm here to save you, sir. And I start shaking him. I'm ready to do CPR. And he's like, F- off, I'm sleeping here. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying you don't need CPR, sir? So they'll tell you <laughs> if they're not a candidate. But <laughs> but yeah, if, they're, if you give them a nudge and they're not waking up, start chest compressions. We want people to assume that someone is down from some sort of a cardiovascular event um, because that's so common. And the best thing that you can do is start CPR. Now, one of two things will happen. They'll either yell at you like they did at Mel and say, get off me. And that's great. Or they need the chest compressions and then you continue going, call for help. But we don't recommend that you try to feel for a pulse um, because, frankly, it's really difficult to feel for a pulse. It's even hard for medical professionals sometimes to feel a pulse. If you think about it, someone's unconscious, their blood pressure is going to be really, really low. So that pulse is probably going to be very faint if you can even feel it at all. So don't waste the time. Just start the compressions right away. It gives them the best chance for survival. And what was that term you said? Peri arrest state? Peri? Peri arrest? Am I saying that right? So arrest is when you're dead, heart stop, you're not breathing. That's arrest. You have arrest in your life uh, things that make you living, breathing, pumping. And a peri arrest state is just before that. It's that time right before you, everything stops. So you look like you're dead, but you might still be breathing really slowly. Mm. Uh, your heart might still be beating, but really slowly or very weakly. But you're not dead yet, as the Monty Python um, movie would say. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. So it's that time just before the person arrests. And that's a really important time because there's some things you could do potentially in that time period so that they don't die. And actually, Dave, you found a great example of this online. And the video is in the show notes. And it's a it's a pretty amazing video of a EMS first responder who arrives to someone who's had a heroin overdose and the EMS responders wearing a body cam. And so you can see what a heroin overdose looks like. And you can see this peri-arrest state. That person is dying. He's starting to turn blue. And how quickly that gets reversed when he gets the antidote to heroin, which is naloxone. Yeah, it's actually one of the best videos I've seen of that ever. So he's on the bed. He's unconscious. He's breathing like two times a minute, which is not enough times per minute. That doesn't sound enough. And then he starts, <laughs> then he starts to turn blue. And yeah, that's the exact peri-arrest state. If you don't do something very soon, he will die. So, but in, in real time, how fast does a person wake up from that overdose once you administer the naloxone? Fast. It, <laughs> yeah. As fast as Mia wakes up from being stabbed in the heart with adrenaline? Not that fast. So oh, okay. if it's, here's the thing. Um, if it's a pure heroin overdose and you give the pure reversal agent naloxone, within 60 seconds, that person will generally, if you give it IV, that person will be awake and probably in withdrawal screaming at you, calling you an arsehole. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not instant, but it's pretty quick. It's, you know, within a few minutes, this person, if it's going to work, wakes up pretty quickly. Do most drugs have like 
this miraculous, amazing antidote, or is it just heroin that has the benefit of this? Now, heroin has the best one. Um, there are reversal agents for things like benzodiazepines. We don't use them very much. But like the big one, the one that kills most people, alcohol, there is no magic alcohol would, you know, reversal drug. It's called time and headaches is the reversal for alcohol. <laughs> that was called a Bloody Mary with a rag in it. All right. So Pulp Fiction, classic scene, but uh, lots of problems there. So I'm giving that one a C+. C plus. I'm giving it an A because it's a classic and I love that movie, even though the medicine, not so accurate. Where, but where do you go from there? You've already given it an A. Hey, there's triple A rating bonds. A rating would be fine, so you never know what could happen. Then again, you are the professor. Yeah, I'm so taking his class. I'll defer to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the next movie. Yes. Mad Max Fury Road. Don't, don't, Okay, I'll come clean, I'll admit it. I love the Mad Max series. In a world gone mad. Why you ask? Well, the whole post-apocalyptic world thing is just fascinating to me. Here is where it shall be decided. It speaks to a deep, dark place in my consciousness where I'm very concerned about the future of the planet. And only the greatest warriors and their deadliest enemies emerged from the flames. And in that genre, the Mad Max series is a classic. It helps that it was directed by George Miller, Australia's most famous director, and the fact that George is a doc. And he paid for the first two Mad Max movies by working where? In the emergency department and as the on-set physician. Well, at that point, you had me at hello. Shut up. Just shut up. Okay, so Mad Max Fury Road is like set in a post-apocalyptic world and there's this horrible guy, Joe. Who's this just disgusting blob guy with this facial apparatus that helps him breathe. It is by my hand you arise from the ashes of this world. So he sends his top commander, Imperator Furiosa, played by Charlize Theron, out on a gas run. But little does Joe know that in hiding inside her truck thing, uh, his breeding wives. And then it becomes a race to kind of capture her and then capture his brides back because they're the only people that he'll breed with or some It's really gross. Anyway, she's smuggling them out because she's like, this is no life for you ladies. I'm going to help you escape. And so it's like this big desert race. Which goes for the entire movie. Given Dr. Miller's background, it's no surprise that there are lots of medical scenes. In one scene in particular, you get two great procedures. Uh, long story short, last car chase scene. There's lots of big explosions and fights and uh, Furiosa gets kind of quite injured. You know, it's bad. It's not good. She gets beat up pretty badly. She's stabbed on her right side. She takes a really hard kick to the chest. She gets messed up. It turns out you should not cross an insane, slightly mutated post-apocalyptic dictator any more than you should a pre-apocalyptic dictator. Okay, so Charlize is laying there in the back of this dune buggy thing, and she's like wheezing. Bleeding out, and she can't breathe, and she's choking, making these horrible sounds like... And someone in the back is saying that she Seems to be dying. She's in peril of some sort. Uh, it looks like she's lost 
some blood, but more than that, it looks like there's some kind of problem with a collapsed lung. There's a wise little medicine woman in the back seat who seems to have superb knowledge of medicine and physiology and can diagnose Furiosa on the spot, which is really helpful to Max. The medicine woman explains that Furiosa has a collapsed lung. Why is she making that noise? She's pumping air into her chest cavity. She's collapsing her lungs, one breath at a time. What she's describing is called a pneumothorax, and her description is pretty much the best one I've heard for how that works. So imagine that there's a puncture in the lung. Each time you take a breath in, air goes into the lung, but it leaks out from the lung into the chest cavity. The pressure keeps building up in the chest cavity, squishing the lung down. The lung is trying to fill, but the pressure outside the lung keeps squishing it. People commonly call this a collapsed lung, but it makes more sense to me to call it a squished lung. And this will continue unless that pressure in the chest is decompressed by opening it up. Tom Hardy takes a knife and he stabs her. First of all, he apologizes for what he's about to do. <laughs> I am so sorry. He stabs in her lung and it kind of goes uh, She immediately seems as if she uh, receives the air, the oxygen that she needs. It works, and he converts that tension pneumothorax to an open pneumothorax. Nice work, Max. Now in the ER, we would do this with sterile equipment, and we'd put a tube there, but in a pinch, that's it. You got it. But she's still bleeding to death. She's exsanguinated, drained all her blood. Furiosa needs a blood transfusion, and we know that Max happens to be a universal donor. He's had some experience with this. He has some jerry-rigged IV blood transfusion contraption. Kind of get some, like, plastic tubing and, like, sticks it in his own skin and then sticks it in her arm. And, and he's kind of, like, you know, holding the tube or holding the bag up or something so that it gets the gravity and that it flows into her. And the blood then starts flowing from him into her. Now, Max, direct transfusion has been described since the 1600s, but even then they knew you had to go from the arterial side of the donor to the venous side of the recipient. So you're going to lose a few points there. I'm even going to ignore the fact that you have no idea how long to run this transfusion because you can't really work out how much blood's going from you and into her. Perhaps until she goes in the CHF or your arrest. Or maybe you just plan on giving her a little bit of blood. It's not clear, but by the look of her, she needs a couple of liters, dude. Now, I'm not that concerned that this is a venous-to-venous -venous transfusion instead of arterial-to-venous because I know that Furiosa's blood pressure is very low, so I'm pretty sure the blood would flow from Max to Furiosa because of the pressure differential. The biggest problem that I have with this scene is that Furiosa would probably die a few days later from sepsis because the tubing and needles look pretty dirty, and this would seed bacteria directly into her bloodstream. Max too, unfortunately. Maybe future people have gotten better at fighting infections, or maybe there's some antibiotics. So overall, I give this scene an A-, minus. good chest decompression, a plausible transfusion, but loses points for aseptic technique. I'm going to ignore it all. That's right, all of it. I'm going to ignore all of it, because it's a fantastic series in the post-apocalyptic genre. It's directed by our own George Miller, and he was an ER doc. Come on, I'm ignoring it all. Okay. What'd you guys think about that flick? Oh, it's like one of my favorites. It's it's like, you know, what's so good about Mad Max is that, or Mad Max Fury Road, 
is it was exactly what everyone thought it should have been. If you were to take all the best scenes from all the previous movies and just make it into one great film, it, that's what it did. It encapsulated all of them into one great film. It was so good. You, and that's uh, why it won Best Picture. Oh, D- are you calling it? <laughs> Jess is calling was it. Was it nominated for that? I thought it was an instant classic. I thought it was at least as good as the original Mad Max, which was sort of an indie, you know, crazy Australian movie. So so just to recap, Pulp Fiction, that one was a C plus for me, for me. Mad Max Fury Road. I thought the medicine was pretty good, so I'm giving that one an A minus. Professor, Doctor? Herbert. I thought the medicine actually was very accurate, so I'm going to give it double A. Double A. <laughs> I didn't know he was an ER doctor. Je- so that's why Jess gave him like an A minus scene. Cause he was like, he was, he was on the set for his, he was like his own expert on the set. Yeah. 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 Go George. Nice. That's cool. So, okay. What, what exactly is a collapsed lung here? I don't understand how a lung could get punctured, but this outside part of it isn't punctured. So I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. I, I, I don't get it. Well, I'll try an analogy. I'm just going to make it up as I go along. So your lung is a okay. balloon. It would be like sticking a balloon inside a giant piece of steak. Think of a giant piece of steak around a balloon, and you take a needle, okay. and you shove it through the steak, and you go into the balloon, right. and the balloon pops, and then you pull the needle out. So that steak is so thick that it can sort of uh, close off the hole that you put there. But the balloon okay. is now broken. So your lung, the balloon has collapsed, but uh, the chest wall you may still be sealed. So that uh, can be a problem because under this rare circumstance like our patient had in Mad Max, is that every time that patient's breathing in, what can happen is that they can still suck air into that balloon part, the lung, but it can't get out of the chest. So every time they breathe in, the pressure in the chest gets more and more. They're sucking air in, but it can't get out because the balloon has collapsed. And then they're getting a thing called tension pneumothorax. They become so much pressure inside their chest that they can actually die because their heart gets squished flat from all this air that they're breathing in, but they can't breathe out. So would that stake then be getting larger because it's filling up yeah, with yeah, air? Yeah, their chest gets tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And then it just squishes everything inside the chest. So the air trapped inside is squishing everything squishing everything yeah and you see it like in in that scene you see her getting sicker and taking little and little breaths one of the sayings is the more you yeah. inspire the more you breathe in the closer you are to expiring the closer you are to dying so you'll see people taking um. smaller and smaller breaths going because <laughs> they want to breathe but they can't they're breathing against so much pressure and the only way that person survives is if you do what yes you gotta decompress the chest <laughs> so Boom. that's what Max is doing. He basically takes that knife and he inserts it between her ribs. So he's creating a little opening so that all that air, that squeezing all that pressure, squeezing that lung down can suddenly kind of gush out of the chest. It allows the lung to expand with the next breath she takes in. Her lung can reinflate and that temporarily is going to save her life. Now in the ER... We put a tube in there so that the air could keep coming out in a nice, clean, sterile fashion. Mm. But in a pinch, that is all you need to save someone's life if they're dying from a tension pneumothorax. How far would you need to um, stab somebody before you... I mean, could you go too far if... Yes, I mean, if it, the lung is being squeezed, I would imagine it's... Well, yeah. You I could mean, always go too I mean, far. not like... 
<laughs> not very far, but like what? What are we talking, like an inch or two? Or? Well, it depends on the person. If you've got little skinny Jess up there, then you know an inch is probably as far as you need to go through most of her chest wall to get into the lung. If you've got a 350-pound person with lots of fat on their chest, you might have to go through six inches. Oh. So you've got to kind of look at the patient mm. and go, I think the lung's about there. And there's places you go on the chest which are less likely to have fat and you sort of go on the side of their chest, kind of where he did between the ribs is where there's the least amount of muscle and fat. So that's usually just a few inches that you need to go in. Okay. Okay. You pretty much know when you're in though because you hear that gush. Really? It like actually makes a sound of... Oh, yeah. Like a gush, gush of air. Yeah, it does. When we when we get into the chest, we'll, we'll cut with a scalpel, but then we'll put in something that looks like scissors that we put in when they're closed, and then we open them up, and you can kind of feel a pop as you go through that outer mm. coating, that outer layer of the lung called the pleura. Mm-hmm. And you can pop in, and that's when you hear, once you, you hear, like, you feel the pop, and then you hear the psh. So it's, it's very, you know it when you're there. It's so satisfying. Wow. It's like popping, yeah. a, popping a zit. Ah, oh, that's great. Like a big uh. zit. <laughs> so if I were to do one of these transfusions in a pinch in the wilderness, do I have to make sure that, that I would have to start with the artery in my arm and then make sure I find a vein in the other to get like a one-way street going? Or, I mean, how do I make sure that it goes from my body to the person who needs it and not the other way around? So in this case, Furiosa is really hypotensive. So her blood pressure is super low. That's why she's dying, right? You're going unconscious. Blood pressure super low. Not getting perfusion to her brain. His blood pressure is probably normal. And he's also standing over her. So we have some advantage here, both from gravity and the, the pressure differential. So in this case, if he's going from his vein to her vein... I think, and now I haven't tested this in a randomized controlled trial, but I think that the blood would flow from Max to Furiosa. And that's just sort of me guessing, just an educated guess. If I was trying to transfuse my blood to you, Dave, which would be silly, why would I do that? But if I was trying to, it wouldn't go to you unless there was a blood pressure differential. And that's why we'd probably need to go from my artery to your vein. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Over yeah, the because over history, there's been lots and lots of different ways of doing transfusions. So direct transfusions from one person to another, arterial to their veins. Um, then they've done in into a bottle first, hold the bottle up high, and then they've taken syringes out where they just stab you and suck your blood out and then poke it into the other person and push it in under pressure. There's like the history mm. of it is fascinating, all the different ways. But it, in the end, it just comes down to pressure. The pressure of the blood that you have on one side has got to be higher to push it into you, and there's a lot of different ways to do it. We have some uh, links to websites with the history of blood transfusions in the show notes as well. And the first blood transfusion was actually Ooh. done, again, in dogs. I'm sorry, PETA. <laughs> uh, in 1665. Those pooches. I know. I know. When was the first one that didn't kill somebody? <laughs> Because uh, 1818, oh, there you go. British obstetrician, oh yeah, in a in a postpartum hemorrhage. Yep. Because the one thing we haven't talked about here is that you can't just go up to somebody and give them your own blood because there's all these immune things and there are some people's blood that's compatible with other people's blood. So don't just be going 
given your blood to anybody like this on Mad Max because you can kill them pretty fast if you have incompatible blood. So please don't try this at home, kids. This is not how it works. I wouldn't even know how to diagnose any of these people. So I just based on that fact, I guess it would not be good for me to try any of these procedures. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> okay, so Pulp Fiction uh, is a no on stabbing on the ch- in the chest. <laughs> Mad Max is a yes in stabbing in the chest. Yes, if you got the diagnosis right. <laughs> All right, that's it for part one of Movie Medicine. Make sure you check out part two where we tackle The Revenant. <laughs>